Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, with a message titled, The Sermon on the Plain. So turning your Bibles to Luke 6, 17 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Jesus was a preacher. And as all preachers know, those who come to hear them come for many different reasons. There are the curious, the skeptics, the enemies, the seekers, and of course, there are the believers. Every good preacher knows that when he speaks, he speaks to those different kinds of people. You know, and Jesus, having set up his base of operations in Capernaum, the fishing village, it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he would use that body of water to go to the villages that surround it, and he'd also walk overland to a great many villages all throughout Galilee. And on all those occasions, the crowds would gather. Indeed, as Matthew describes Jesus' activities, he says that Jesus went all throughout Galilee, taught in the synagogues, but he also taught in a number of outdoor locations. And crowds would come, and the fame of Jesus was spreading. Matthew says that his fame not only spread to Judea with the capital in Jerusalem, but his fame spread as far north as Syria. Crowds were coming. They were coming to him, but he was also going out to them. Now, I mention this because in our study in Luke, we come to the place where Jesus delivers one of his major sermons. And this sermon has sometimes been called the Sermon on the Plain because our passage begins by saying that Jesus came down from the mountain where he had made a selection of his 12 apostles, and then he came down with them and stood in a level place, and from that place a crowd gathered to him. And then the sermon that Jesus preaches on that day is a sermon that in a number of key places sounds so much like the Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew records in chapters 5 to 7. I mean, for one, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus beginning with a series of Beatitudes, and you remember them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke's description of the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus begins in a very similar way. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, you'll notice that in Matthew, Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who are spiritually poor. But in Luke, he pronounces a blessing simply on the poor. You know, very similar and yet a very important difference. And furthermore, in Matthew, Jesus pronounces nine blessings. And in Luke, there are only four of them. Well, the explanation of that might be rather simple. Luke's recounting this sermon, and it's considerably shorter than that of Matthew's recounting of the same sermon. And so it's been suggested that the difference between Matthew's version and Luke's version is simply that Luke gives a more abbreviated account, whereas Matthew gives the full sermon. Well, perhaps. But as one reads the two sermons side by side, we find that not only do they begin in the same way, they also end the same way. You know, it ends with the story of a man who's built his house on a rock and the man who built his house without a proper foundation and what occurred when the stream rose and threatened the two houses. Perhaps then it can be argued that these really are two accounts that recount the same sermon. Not only do both accounts begin and end in the same way, they also contain the same themes. Loving one's enemies, doing good to those who hate you, that's one. Refraining from offering rash judgments on others so that we ourselves won't be condemned, that's another. You see, in both sermons, Jesus speaks of the dangers 
of picking the speck out of our brother's eye while we have a log in our own. You see, in both places, that is in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus teaches that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor vice versa. And so from that perspective, it does seem like Luke has merely abbreviated the sermon. And in fact, that Matthew says that Jesus went up a mountain and sat on it, and Luke says he came down from the mountain and stood on a level place. That might not be a difference at all. I mean, surely when Jesus went up the mountain in, you know, Matthew, you know, he sat down on a level place. And in Luke, when he came down from the mountain, he may still have chosen a place to teach that was higher than the audience so that they could both see and hear him. But there's a difference between the two sermons. I mean, for one, Matthew does not include the four woes that Luke records. And if Luke is the abbreviated version, what accounts for that? And as we've already seen, there seems to be a subtle difference of emphasis between the two sermons. We've already noted that Matthew's version has Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor. You know, some have suggested that Luke, because he's writing for an overwhelmingly Gentile audience, well, he deliberately leaves out those parts of the Sermon on the Mount which have a decidedly Jewish emphasis and which might not mean a lot for Gentile Christians. As but one example of that, Luke does not include the teaching that Jesus had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. In Luke also, he doesn't include, you have heard it said, I mean, those parts. I mean, you've heard it said when Jesus quotes the rabbis and what they taught, and here's how Jesus responds. Luke omits all of that simply because that wouldn't have meant that much to his Gentile readers. See, all of that sounds plausible, that both Matthew and Luke record the same sermon, but Luke edits it so that his Gentile readers will track with the ethical demands of Jesus' teaching, but not be confused by the uniquely Jewish references in that same sermon. See, that view of things is certainly plausible. But that view still doesn't explain why in Matthew's recounting of the sermon, he records Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in Luke's version, he records Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. You see, that seems less of an edit and much more of a change of emphasis. I mean, not that the two sayings contradict, they most certainly do not, but the emphasis has shifted. And the woes that follow in Luke seem also to shift the emphasis. Now, of course, I can't say this definitively, but my best guess is this. Since Jesus was an itinerant preacher, that is a traveling preacher, as is the case with most traveling preachers, they preach the same sermon in multiple locations, but they may change details and the emphasis to match the local situation. And I think that's what we're reading here. I mean, one is the Sermon on the Mount and the other is the Sermon on the Plain. That is to say, it's the same sermon, But these sermons were preached in different places with a different emphasis added. You know, I'll say all that, not to bore my listener, but to help my listener, I I take it that you, my listener, are interested in studying the Bible, and I want to help you to understand what you're reading. So let's open our Bible, shall we, and read the introduction to the Sermon on the Plain. It's found in Luke 6, 17 to 19. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The reference here is that Jesus has spent all night on the mountain in prayer. The gigantic task before him was his selection of his 12 apostles, the men who would, after he was gone, be charged with accurately communicating all that he had done, all that he was, what he taught, and how to apply that teaching to the lives of people. These 12 men would be charged with that task. And so the decision as to who was to be included was a decision that required a night in prayer. So in the morning, among those who were his disciples, Jesus chose 12 to be apostles. That task being done, he comes down from the mountain. Some have suggested that this coming down from the mountain mirrors Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in his hands. Now, of course, Luke never makes that comparison, but I pointed out here that whereas Moses came down the mountain with the law of God in his hands, something that indeed had great glory, Jesus comes down the mountain with the men who will bring the gospel to the world that has greater glory. There must have been a crowd of people at the base of the mountain awaiting Jesus' appearance. And as the crowd was awaiting him, it's from that location that Jesus will teach. And this crowd is very interesting. We notice that Luke tells us there's a multitude, which means a very large crowd. So what precipitated such a gathering? Was it there an awareness that Jesus had chosen his team and that was making an impact? Or was there an anticipation that Jesus was about to make a messianic announcement? Well, we don't know. But there's a great crowd. Luke mentions they've also come from Judea, the province to the south of Galilee, as well as people from the city of Jerusalem. Luke also mentions people who have arrived from Tyre and Sidon, north on the Mediterranean coast. It's likely that they were Jews, but not necessarily. They could have been Gentiles as well. We know that Jesus did minister to some Gentiles in that region. So Jesus' popularity is growing. And Luke tells us that the apostles were there and a great crowd of disciples was there, meaning there was indeed a great multitude. But as I said from the beginning, there were people who came with very different attitudes and very different expectations. We all depend upon the grace of God for all things. In this new year, Back to the Bible Canada persists in our mission to proclaim biblical truth through audio and video programs, printed resources, and social media, both nationally and internationally. Well, by God's grace, God is blessing this mission. And that grace is manifest through faithful listeners who pray, encourage, and give. It may be that you've intended to offer financial support, but it remains on your to-do list. Might I suggest today might be that day. If you're able, please consider a financial gift and join this God-given mission. To do so, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We're so grateful for your kind generosity. Your investment is used by God to share the gospel with the lost and to grow those who believe. I find it fascinating to examine the three groups of people that Luke describes in that multitude. I mean, the first group are the apostles. I mean, they're the people that Jesus has chosen to be his trained leaders. 
The second group, he says, are the multitude of the disciples, and that speaks of the people who have committed their lives to Jesus, to his teaching, to his direction in their lives. They might have been hoping that he was the Messiah, but whatever they hoped for, they believed in him. But the third group that Luke describes, he simply calls them a great multitude of the people, the crowds. They came to see Jesus. So who are they? Why did they come? Well, Luke doesn't tell us, but from what we see in the rest of Jesus' ministry, this crowd is fickle. John says that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, many saw the works that he was doing and they believed in his name, but Jesus, for his part, would not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in their hearts. And we also know that the crowd would sing his praises when the, you know, when the miracles were flowing, but when the day of suffering arrived, they abandoned him and quickly became his critics. I suppose that's not unlike what had always happened wherever the gospel of Jesus has gone. The leaders, the faithful followers, and the crowd. You know, I pastored a large church of thousands, and I felt I saw this, I mean, every day. Some people were extraordinarily faithful, so much so that I often marveled at their faith. And then there were those that were extraordinarily unfaithful. And if the show was good, they remained And if it was not up to their expectations, well, they went go somewhere else, or they simply lost interest. In my estimation, they were just consumers. We might notice how this phenomenon played out in the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. You're going to remember that he was out at the southern Jordan River, and the crowds from Jerusalem were pouring out to hear him preach. So Luke 3, verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That is, John recognized the hypocrisy of many, and he called it out. Now, listen, here in Luke 6, however, as a great multitude is gathering to hear Jesus, and I have to imagine that the crowds that came to see Jesus were much larger than the crowds that came to see John. And even while Jesus knew that the hypocrisy in the crowd was no different than the hypocrisy of John's crowd, he seemed to treat them differently than did John. And I say that because of what Luke says. Luke tells us that this multitude came to hear Jesus preach and to be healed of their diseases. And I'll come back to, you know, the desire to hear him preach in a moment. But for now, let's focus on that second matter. These people came to be healed of their diseases. And they knew that Jesus had the power to do exactly that. And it was not just physical maladies. Luke tells us that there were many who were troubled by unclean spirits. Jesus cured them. Now, in our study of the book of Luke, we've already encountered this before. I mean, you might want to go back to Luke chapter 5, verse 15. And that passage says, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus responds to this. Even while many came to him with impure motives, well, it wasn't callous, it was not non-caring. Of course he knew that there were many hypocrites in that crowd. But Matthew 14, verse 14, very clearly articulates Jesus' response. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. See, the healing he did was motivated by how harassed, how helpless the sons and daughters of Adam actually are. You remember that Adam was told that the day he ate from the forbidden tree, he would die. And of course, since that time, not only have all the generations of the children of Adam died, but they've also suffered before they've died. 
You know, lifespans, which at one point after the fall, still stretched to 900 years, yet by the time of Jesus, those lifespans, especially among the poor, was very short. People often also went hungry. Laughter was often absent from their lives. Healthcare, as much as would have been available to them, would have been ineffective. Infant deaths, the deaths of children, that would have been common. People would have also regularly had lost their livelihoods because of various illnesses. Both the farming that occurred as well as the fishing industry in that area would be touch and go so that poverty was never far off. And what should these people do when they heard that a man had come who was able to cure disease? Well, the reports of his word was attested not by mere rumor. I'm sure there was plenty of rumor, but it was also attested by people who had been healed and others who had witnessed it close at hand. And so the multitude was coming. I mean, why didn't Jesus denounce them as John had done? Well, I think for two reasons. First, John did no miracles. And second, John was a forerunner of the Messiah. He had but one mission, to call for a national repentance to prepare the way for the Messiah. And for that reason, John never put up with half-hearted followers. Now, I don't say that as though we should get the impression that Jesus didn't care about hypocrisy or that he was not demanding in terms of what he expected. And we'll get to that in the Sermon on the Plain shortly. He is demanding. And furthermore, if we go forward to Luke 9, 23, we're going to read, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus was always very clear that a great many of his so-called followers were not really followers at all. They were always going to be those who were going to be rejected in the final day. Jesus would say of them, they would say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do so much in your name? And he would respond by saying, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. See, it's important for us who read these texts to slow down and take it in. The compassion of Jesus towards the needy is an expression of his love for all. He understood the challenges of life and he stood ready to drive out demons and to heal men and women of their diseases After all, Jesus had come announcing the kingdom of God. And the arrival of the kingdom of God is the arrival of the defeat of all of these evil things that are opposed to the purposes of God. Disease and death is the result of sin. It's the judgment of God. It's the utter condemnation of the human race. And so Jesus comes not to condemn the world, but rather to save the world from that which is destroying us. Yes, we're all aware that the question of motives in the crowd is a major problem, a problem that was so great that Jesus knew that many people who came to him for healing would also be the very people that in the end of the day would turn on him and no longer follow him. And yet God is good even to his enemies. See, I think it's fitting to stop and take these things to heart. It is possible that Jesus has blessed your life, my dear hearer. It's possible that you've been healed by Jesus. It's possible that Jesus brought you relief from your suffering and your cares. And it's possible to have all of those things and never to have surrendered your life to him as Savior and Lord. So please, my dear listener, listen. Don't confuse matters. Having been graciously dealt with by Jesus is not necessarily an indicator that you've become his disciple. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to unreservedly surrender your life into his hands. You must trust him and him alone for your forgiveness and your right standing before God. If you trust in your own good works, you'll be unworthy of him. 
You must cry out to him, not my will, but yours be done. I seek to take your hand, and I want only you that you would lead me. Save me, not only from my disease and death. Save me from my sin. Save me from my love of self and from my hatred of God. Redeem me from this death. See, some of the crowd were there, no doubt, because that's exactly what Jesus was offering. And so as Jesus begins to teach the Sermon on the Plain, he tells people not how to enter the kingdom, but rather he begins by describing who it is that's eligible for the kingdom. The poor, the hungry, those who have no resources at all, he says. He also tells those who will never enter. They'll be the rich and the satisfied and those who want the pleasures of this world. If you want to come to hear Jesus preach, that's the message that you'll have wanted to hear him preach. And because he talked that way, people were fascinated, even though some did not agree. Now, please notice that Luke tells us nothing of the faith of those people who were healed. Rather, if we read verse 19, here's what he says, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Yeah, every one of them. Anyone who sought to touch Jesus, no matter what the measure of their faith, on that day, Jesus was merciful and healed them. It's the compassion of our Lord. And so rather than focusing on the healing itself, Luke has us focus on Jesus, who stands at the center of needy humanity, and grace comes out of him, and he heals. He still does that today, even while he calls us to abandon all for the sake of the kingdom. Thanks for your message, John. Uh, Let me ask you, how does God choose who he will be good to? Or is there a better understanding of what his goodness is? Well, on one hand, God is good to everyone. I mean, he's given us life and breath. Many times he rescues us from difficult circumstances, and we haven't even paid attention to the fact that he's done that. So, see, in that sense, God is the savior of all men and he is good to all men. I don't mean it in a salvific sense. I mean the fact that God's goodness is felt by all. But we recognize that God's goodness is directed towards those who confess Christ as Savior and Lord. And so uh, this goodness is an eternal goodness, and uh, we need to recognize that this is the ultimate goodness. And so, yes, um, there is a goodness that is withheld when we will not fall before the feet of Jesus. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may sense a longing for a deeper, more consistent prayer life, and yet readily admit a shortfall to do so. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada wants to support your intentions. And we'd like to send to you as our gift, the booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. This free booklet contains 30 prayers personally selected by Dr. John from a prayer book entitled, The Valley of Vision. 30 Days of Prayer is not instruction about prayer, but provides for us an experience of prayer. It offers each of us a month of daily prayers to reflect upon God and offer the cry of our hearts. We believe this booklet will nurture and direct your desire to spend time in prayer with God. 
To request your free copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.